Welcome to Subject ACT with me, Hedda Murray. Subject ACT brings you stories from your local Canberra community and beyond. Stories with a global dimension. Now, there's a lot of buzz in the media and the community about the breathtaking levels of plastic pollution and debris that we're living with and that we continue to pile up. This month is Plastic Free July, so a perfect time to take a bit of a look at this issue from a couple of different angles. Tonight, we'll look at the big picture and the small and ask, where did all this plastic come from? What's it doing to our environment? And importantly, what can we do about it? Later in the show, I talk with Ryan Lungu, Executive Director of the Canberra Environment Centre. We'll talk about our changing relationship with plastic and how to take some small steps that'll make a huge difference. But first, Let's look at what's come up in the wash nationally and, to some extent, globally by talking microplastics. Microplastics may be really small, but one thing's for sure, they're a huge environmental threat. With me via Zoom is Dr Mark Brown, ecologist from the University of New South Wales. Mark is a driving force in the study of microplastics, both here and overseas, quantifying environmental impacts and looking at some innovative solutions. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi there, Hedda. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well. Look, look, looking forward to our, our chat. Now, uh, Mark, you've done a lot of work on microplastics over the past 20 years. And in fact, I think you are the first person in the world to have done a PhD on microplastics back in 2004. Perhaps you could give us an overview of your interests and the areas of work you're most engaged with? Yeah, I was very lucky to be accepted onto that PhD program. Um, at that time, we didn't really know much about tiny particles of plastic. We thought it was all coming from microbeads and packaging. Um, and then we found out that a lot of it was actually coming from um, textiles. So that's been a, a large focus, trying to understand how this material gets into the environment, where it goes, what it does to humans and wildlife, and how can we reduce emissions and how can we sort of make our clothes better? So going right the way from science all the way to re-engineering garments, it's been quite a, quite a journey. Mm, yeah, I imagine. Before we get into the nitty gritty, perhaps you can quickly explain what microplastics are and even nanoplastics. How small are we talking? So microplastics are essentially micrometer-sized particles of plastic. So these are plastic particles that are less than the sort of the width of a human hair. Um, nanoplastics are a lot smaller than that. They're nanometers in scale. And we're sort of talking about, you know, things that, you know, you'd, you'd find in your clothes to your household dust, right the way to sort of tiny-sized uh, nanometer-sized particles that are in a range of different products that we use, buy and consume every day. Mm. You've worked all around the world and uh, no doubt you see that acting on a problem means defining it first. One clear step would be to acknowledge that plastics are hazardous and that we need to move towards a plastic-free future wherever possible. Are nations around the world on the same page with this? Um, so that's one of the strategies, isn't it? When you've got a material in the environment as you try to avoid the use of it. Another one is intercepting it. Another one is re-engineering it. Plastics are a problem here because they're listed as a 
a pollutant here, but so are the natural polymers themselves. Other places around the world don't have a listing of any type of polymer as hazardous, even though the evidence shows that at some concentrations, they can cause toxicity. And so the debate there really is about whether or not the quantities in the environment are causing um, impacts to humans and wildlife. And so places like Europe and, and the US have major problems because although they've got very well-defined laws on pollution and how to manage it, and they've got source reduction strategies, they're not able to enact those for many types of plastic materials because they're not listed as a pollutant. Whereas in Australia, we've got that listing. I think Canada's recently got that listing for some of its material, and they're then able to then start putting the onus on the people who are producing it to say, okay, you demonstrate that this isn't a problem now. Mm-hmm. And so that actually creates a really nice lever because it actually puts the research burden on the people producing it to provide the evidence that it's safe. Right. So I guess Australia is in a good position then to take a leadership role on this problem. It, it is. The problem is, is that some people in the departments of the environment don't always understand because of the because they're transitioning through to other departments they're not always there long enough to understand that Australia has these particular laws it lists these things as pollutants if they can get into the environment Um, and so sometimes people are looking at what's happening in uh, over the pond in, in Europe or the US seeing what they're doing and then trying to copy that. And the problem with that is that the laws are very, very different. And so um, there's a real sort of disconnect there. Australia should be showing the leadership. It's got capacity to show the leadership, but sometimes we're waiting to see what happens over the other side of the pond. Oh gosh, that must be uh, extremely frustrating for you. Um, Uh, We managed to nudge them along sometimes by writing articles that we publish in the press. Sometimes the industry aren't entirely happy with that. Um, sometimes with people in government aren't entirely happy with that. But the, the role of a scientist isn't really to be an advocate. It's just to say, here is a problem. Here is the evidence of that problem. Here are a number of ways that you could address it. It's not to really, you know, rank one material better than the other. It's just to say, identify problems, really. Mm-hmm. I think we could all agree that when it comes to plastic consumption and waste, the human impact on biodiversity has been pretty devastating to date. What are some of the key findings you've made through your research that can help us move towards a cleaner future? So we were involved in a, in a major international working group in California. We've got 30 of the top scientists from around the world. We looked at what the available evidence was about sources, the fate of the material, the impact to humans and wildlife. A major output from that work was the first ever systematic review of the evidence of impacts to humans and wildlife. Up until that point, the debate was, is plastic, you know, hazardous or not? It wasn't about whether or not the concentrations in the environment can cause toxicity. It was, is there evidence that this material, when you give it to humans and wildlife, can it cause them problems? And we demonstrated for the first time, when you look across that evidence, assess the quality and quantity of it. Quite clearly, there were impacts to humans and wildlife. Some of the impacts to wildlife 
were more serious ecological ones in relation to fishing gear and um, the recruitment of sort of non-native species to particular areas. You know, you have sandy areas, a bottle gets deposited there, and therefore organisms were able to sort of colonize those bottles and start growing where they wouldn't normally be there. Some of the impacts of the microplastics were demonstrated that there were larger amounts of those impacts, evidence for them compared to other types of materials. Those sorts of impacts ranged from inflammation of tissues to fibrosis, which is like scar tissue, to impaired organ function, to mortality of individuals. There's been evidence of changes in the mixtures of animals and plants from experimental studies. And now really the debate is where it should be, are the quantities that we're finding in ourselves or in the environment causing any of these problems that the experimental studies have actually shown that can happen? And that's where the debate needs to take place. And we're really concerned more often about impacts of the populations of organisms or mixtures of animals and plants that you find in the area that could be impacted by these polymers. And that's what we're trying to establish the evidence for currently. Mm. You've had uh, some positive support for your research from select partners in garment and white good industries and some state governments and local councils, as well as your research partners. Have you been able to gauge how quickly industry and consumers could apply your findings to help minimise this um, incredible problem for biodiversity? Yeah, so at the moment, the the understanding about the problems of fibres, so from the environment, we just know from a range of toxicity experiments that these fibres can have the potential to cause damage in organisms. We know that we find more of them in the environment than most other forms of litter. The, The key question has been about what can the consumers, industry and government do about it? And The difficulty we face is that an awful lot of companies started marketing, say, for instance, filters for washing machines. And the difficulty has been that they've released them on the market with no proper testing. Oh, okay. So we've then built now, got money to build, and we built a laundrette to actually be able to test those types of instruments. And, you know, some of them work, some of them don't really work very well um some of the ones that do work the you know the efficiencies aren't really great for the types of plastic fibers and so we're trying to re-engineer those to make them better what we feel is that the government should really be saying okay we've actually got laws on the scientific nature of marketing of products so if someone says that this product product is actually effective we think that these products need to be tested and the evidence provided before they go on the market. Mm. Um, We have mechanisms for that in Europe, North America and Australia. But again, it's sometimes the, you know, the um, local um, state government agencies and the federal ones um, are dealing with so many environmental problems at the moment that sometimes these issues escape their notice. And so, you know, we, we just try to sometimes nudge them back to say, actually, there is this claim being made. Um, we've done some preliminary tests. Now, if we need to you know, provide the evidence that the consumers need to make informed actions, 
we've got the facilities, we've got the know-how, we just need the support now. Mm. Well, it sounds like you've done some groundbreaking work on where microplastics are coming from, what they're doing to the biodiversity of the planet, and what we can do to change things for the better, uh, albeit with some pushback, I guess, from industry and a certain apathy from our federal government, unfortunately. It's obviously a complex issue. Nevertheless, are you optimistic about the future? Yeah, I mean, actually, there's been some really great initiatives going on. I think sometimes the departments that are, are, reg- are regulating this issue are quite are stretched quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And so our emphasis has been we need to be focusing on material that causes ecological impacts in the environment. If there's impacts to populations and mixtures of animals and plants in areas, we think that's a legitimate concern to start, you know, focusing action on. So the question is now, you know, do plastic fibres or natural fibres cause those types of impacts and how can we reduce them? And the great thing's been working with textile engineers. We've got one of the best textile engineers from Brazil over working with us in Australia at the moment, Marina Tedesco, 15 years experience working in the industry, remaking clothing. And she's looking at what the properties of garments are that cause the emissions and impacts and then using that knowledge to actually choose fibers yarns and fabrics that actually are more durable and less toxic and that stuff's not happening anywhere else in the world and so i think it's a really exciting time and given that you know australians use more clothing than anyone else and pay more money for it i think it's a real opportunity to reignite the textile market here in Australia and to get it leading the world in, in what we do. Oh, well, that's very encouraging. And uh, it's great to know that uh, we can lead the world and let's hope we can inspire the textile industry to <laughs> jump on board and really get going with with uh, taking up your research findings. Thanks, Mark, for shedding light on this really critical issue, its complexity and your vision for a cleaner future. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've been talking with Dr Mark Brown, ecologist from the University of New South Wales Faculty of Science. You're listening to 2XFM, people-powered radio. And the show is Subject ACT with me, Hedda Murray. Great to have you with me. It's a plastic-free July, and tonight we're talking all things plastic. But before we move on, let's draw breath and take a quick look back. It was 1907 when the world's first fully synthetic plastic, Bakelite, was invented in New York in 1907 by Leo Bakerland, who coined the term plastics. I think it's safe to say that, especially over the last 50 years, Plastics have now saturated our world and changed the way we live. Now we're in the 2020s and it's time to change once again. My next guest is going to help us look at just how we do that. Ryan Lungu is the Executive Director of the Canberra Environment Centre. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, Heather. Now, Ryan, I think you'd agree that we need to reassess our relationship with plastic. And it's Plastic Free July And that can sound a bit nerve-wracking and hopeful at the same time. Can you tease out for us what we mean when we say plastic-free? What sort of plastic are we talking about? 
Well, Heather, the biggest problem that we currently have with regards to pollution of plastic and the build-up of plastic in our landfills is single-use plastic. So that's your plastic bags that you only use once, which luckily we're phasing out a little bit of. That's plastic water bottles, um, as in the single-use ones. That is your plastic straws and also the uh, disposable coffee cups. So they're the big four of single-use plastic that we try to focus on for Plastic Free July. Mm. And uh, in researching for this program, I came across a lot of information on the internet about why we could break up with plastic and none of it seems that outrageous or hard to do. What are your top tips for replacing single-use plastic? Well, I would say, Heather, that the the changes that we need to make aren't that difficult. It's actually making the change, which is hard. And so my tips are to make a pledge to yourself and your family. And that's what Plastic Free July is all about. Um, they're, they're a fantastic little or big organisation now and they have a website, plasticfreejuly.org, where you can go onto their website and just make a pledge of what you're going to give up for the month. And that might just be one of those things you don't have to remove all of the big four and obviously there's a lot more than just that four but just um, being really authentic to yourself in the changes you want to make and why and taking responsibility for some of your own waste uh, which does mean giving up a bit of convenience but ultimately it improves your life because you'll find a bag that you really love and you'll take that everywhere with you and you'll find your water bottle that becomes a part of your everyday life rather than these plastic uh, items that end up clogging up our drawers and our back rooms and then our landfills and our oceans, unfortunately. A simple step that uh, my household took was to cut down on cling wrap. And I can say from first-hand experience that it's been remarkably easy. Yes, uh, cling wrap is one that we use a lot of and we, yes, it's pretty much the epitome of single use isn't it mm. but um beeswax wraps are a great alternative have you ventured into that land yes yes we have yes we've got uh, <laughs> quite a few bees wraps yeah well they're um they're expensive to buy but very cheap to make and easy to make if not a little bit messy mm. <laughs> but um yeah there are um, it's so simple these alternatives but they do take a little bit of energy on our part but did you find it more enjoyable to use beeswax wraps than cling wrap? Yes, uh, it's it's very easy and um, uh, the role of cling wraps just sitting in the drawer there and it hasn't been touched. Mm. Yeah, a great way for households to to have a look at what they could cut out of their, you know, of their plastic usage is to do a bin audit, which we encourage people to do, which is essentially just to spend a week um, writing down everything that goes into your household bin, whether that means you have to have a piece of paper or a whiteboard or something near the bin. Um, and then you can kind of have a look at what the most common single-use plastics are that you're using, what the easiest things might be for you to cut out. And also um, it's interesting to look at what days and what times we tend to use a lot of this single-use stuff when we're busy tends to be when we go for the convenient options. So a bit of planning goes a long way in um, just helping us to reduce our usage of single-use plastic. The funny thing about the household bin is that if you're recycling right, um, which the ACT No Waste has a great amount of information on their website and they're running a, a program on the moment at the moment about recycling right so if you're putting taking out all the right things to put in your recycling bin if you are able to compost and worm farm either at home 
or take your scraps to someone else who can do it, then pretty much all that's left in your bin should be soft plastics. Um, And we know now that these can be taken to some of the biggest supermarket chains and put in the red cycle bins. Mm -hmm. And if you take all of that stuff away, you pretty much end up with nothing in your bin. Um, I think... I think it's about 37% in the ACT of our bins are food waste. So that's still a big problem. And the ACT no waste will be bringing in household green bins at the curbside in a couple of years. So we have to do something in the interim because um, all that food waste, when it's surrounded by plastic in the landfill, it emits methane, which is 20 times more damaging to our atmosphere than carbon dioxide. So it's, a big problem so but yeah taking out all that wet stuff uh, means that your bin actually is dry which means you don't need a bin liner and um yeah if you there are alternatives now for pretty much everything that goes in our household bin so you might find yourself with an empty red bin wow that'd be great that's <laughs> yeah. uh, that's great encouragement uh, especially for potential gardeners among us what what options are there for folk who don't have compost bins and worm farms for for example uh, those that live in apartments or don't have gardens or physically are unable to dedicate time to gardening? Yes. Well, um, composting can be looked at in two ways. There is making compost for your garden, which is um, a more intensive process, and there is just making compost in order to dispose of food waste responsibly. If you live in an apartment, uh, the Bakashi composting system can work quite well. It does cost um, a little bit to set up. But uh, there are ways of doing it. It's a, a smell-free kind of waste. That's Bokashi as in B-O-K-A-S-H-I. Um, there are other alternatives. There's a great website called sharewaste.com. And that's kind of like a sharing platform for people who have scraps matching up with people who need them, either to feed their chickens or their guinea pigs or maybe they're making compost on a larger scale. Um, I would always recommend people in apartments to have a look at sharewaste.com. Then there's also uh, getting involved with your local community garden brings lots of benefits. Usually they'll let you bring, not always, but they're wanting to make compost for their garden. They'll let you bring your scraps along. Or there's a great startup nonprofit in Canberra called Capital Scraps Composting, uh, where Brooke Clinton from an organization called Sea Change um, actually has an operation collecting people's scraps and composting them in suburbs around Canberra. Wow, that's that's really encouraging. Um, Ryan, if there's one really fundamental message you'd like listeners to take away with them from our conversation today, what would that be? Take some responsibility for uh, the waste that we create and that doesn't mean feeling guilt or shame for the plastic that's in our lives. It just means starting where you are and doing what you can. Uh, Give up one thing for Plastic Free July and I think you'll find that you keep that, you know, that habit and that behaviour afterwards because when we do something to help our environment, we generally feel good about it and it makes us happy. So just make one change and um, be easy on yourself in doing so. So we don't have to set the the bar high, I guess, for for those of us who are new to this. No. Well, one quote that I really love um, is, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need millions of people doing it imperfectly. So just being aware of the fact that 
when you put something in the bin, in the best case scenario at the moment, it ends up buried in the ground um, if it doesn't find its way into the lakes or into the ocean. And that means it's leaching toxins into the environment and eventually it will run out of space to bury this stuff. It takes 400 odd years for a plastic bottle to break down, which means that every piece of plastic we've ever created is still with us. So just being aware, um, taking a bit of responsibility, but, you know, plastic's everywhere. It's all around us. Not to feel guilty because that can stop us from changing, but just, um, yeah, do one thing. Is the Environment Centre in Canberra offering uh, workshops or some sort of support for people who are interested in trying out Plastic Free July? Most certainly. So um, we've got a few talks and workshops coming up throughout July. Uh, We run a whole series of workshops, so we have one or two a week that aren't always focused on plastic, but they're just focused on sustainable living behaviours. They're short two-hour workshops. You can find them on our website, canberraenvironment.org. They're in person at the moment, which is great. We do some of them online as well. We have a regular composting and worm farming online workshop. Um, We also have a community garden down here that we have regular working bees on, which you can also find on our website. And housed here with the Canberra Environment Centre is the Recyclery, which is a recycled bike shop where um, if people have unwanted bicycles in their garages, they can bring them down to us. We've got a team of skilled volunteer mechanics who will fix them up and give them a new life. Oh, great. Thanks, Ryan, for joining me today to talk about how we can take some small steps in our daily lives that will reap huge outcomes for all of us. Yes, thank you very much, Heather. Um, Every little effort that we all make individually will add up to a, a huge change that we can make for our environment. I've been talking with Ryan Lungu, Executive Director of the Canberra Environment Centre. And if you'd like to find out more, please check out the Environment Centre on their website. I'll also post some links on the Subject ACT Facebook page. Thanks again, Ryan. Thank you for having me, Heather. That interview with Ryan Lungu from the Canberra Environment Centre brings us to the close of the show. If you'd like more information on how to break up with plastic or on the issue my earlier guest Dr Mark Brown spoke of, namely microplastics, I'll post some links on the Subject ACT Facebook page. I'm Hedda Murray. Thanks for listening. 2XXFM 98.3 in Canberra or streaming online at 2XXFM.org dot au